WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. As a famous astronomer Carl Sagan once said, we're all made of star stuff. Today we're here talking to a nuclear astrophysicist, Rahul Jain. Rahul, can you tell us more about what you research in nuclear astrophysics, please? Yes, nuclear astrophysics is the study of nuclear reactions that happen inside stars in all astronomical bodies, so including stars, galaxies, as such. Our group focuses on all the nuclear reactions that happens in basically for the production of elements. So where do the elements come from? My particular research is in the study of neutron stars and what they call as low mass X-ray binaries. That is a neutron star, which is in a binary system with a sun-like star. Thanks for joining us this morning, Rahul. Let's take a step back for a second now. And can you explain to our audience what a neutron star is? Is it just a big mass that has a whole bunch of neutrons in there? What is that? When stars die, they can basically die in a variety of ways, depending on what sort of how big they initially were. So some small stars will basically die and end up like in white dwarfs. So white dwarfs are basically when the matter is compressed enough and then you end up with carbon and oxygen at the center. But some heavier stars can actually collapse in such a way that the atoms that are in the stars, the electrons can actually go into the nucleus and basically it's just a giant mass of neutrons that is there in the stars. So to give you an idea, a neutron star is basically all the mass of like almost that of a sun, which is compressed into the size of, let's say, the city of Lansing. So it's very, very dense material. It's out there in the sky and we astronomers can actually look at it. Thanks for that explanation. I like that analogy of how it would be like the size of Lansing. However, stars are really far from us, and I would imagine that we don't just have a neutron star next to the moon. How are you analyzing these stars? Are you using a telescope, for example? We don't actually go and see the stars. It's our astronomer friends who go and see the stars. So we collaborate a lot with X-ray astronomers, so people who go out there and look for X-rays from neutron stars. My research comes in where we try to explain what kind of X-rays they see. So whenever an astronomer friend see some kind of X-rays, we have physics models to predict what kinds of X-rays we will see from those stars. And it's often the case that we can't exactly predict what we are able to see. And this is where the discrepancies between our models and the actual observations lie. So I, as a nuclear physicist, try to improve our current understanding of these models by making our physics better and to accurately predict what our astronomer friends can see. And then it goes usually as a feedback wherein our astronomer friends see something and then we predict a new thing. Then depending on our predictions, they try to look for those kind of things. And then depending on what they see, we also try to better our physics. So it goes like kind of back and forth. But this is where the field of nuclear astrophysics comes in. It's an interdisciplinary field with astronomy and nuclear physics. That's great that this kind of relationship exists between astronomers and nuclear physicists. So that way you're able to work together to be able to constrain these X-ray burst models that you've been working on. However, I'm curious about why you're specifically studying X-rays. Are there other things that are emitted from these low mass X-ray binaries that you had mentioned earlier in the interview? Or are there any other observables that you can witness in the night sky whenever astronomers are taking and collecting their data? 
Yeah, thanks for the question, Danny. So yes, there are other things emitted along with X-rays from these low mass X-ray binaries. There are things like radio waves or things like ultraviolet rays, etc. Everything is emitted. And there are different kinds of astronomers who look for different things. We particularly collaborate with X-ray astronomers because that is what is most impacted by changing the nuclear physics. And our collaboration part comes in where we measure those nuclear physics properties in our lab at the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory or the NSCL at Michigan State University. And these quantities basically then go into the models which predicts what kind of X-rays we will observe. And this is where our part comes in. Oh, it's great that you work at the NSCL. We've had people on the Sci-Files before that work over there as well. How is your research contributing to the knowledge that scientists already have about neutron stars? We try to look for reactions that can basically tell us what kind of X-rays that we see. And previous work has been done on figuring out what are the important reactions. It turns out that there is this one important reaction wherein a nucleus, a proton can transfer into a neutron and a neutron can transfer into a proton. And that affects how much energy is released by the neutron star, which affects what kind of X-rays we see. So my particular research is based on studying the beta decay strength, the transition strength of 33 magnesium. So it's an exotic nuclei that can only be found in neutron stars. Normal magnesium is 24 magnesium that has 12 protons and 12 neutrons. 33 magnesium has 9 extra neutrons, which makes it exotic. It is basically produced in the laboratory at NSCL. It decays in 89 milliseconds. So that's very small. And within that time frame, we basically produce that isotope and study it at the NSCL. 89 milliseconds is actually really, really fast to be able to do this kind of experiment I would imagine, however, that you would probably need to run this experiment for a while to be able to collect enough data to draw any conclusions from it. Could you expand a little bit more about how this 89 milliseconds plays a role in your experiment? Is that the time it takes from the beam to get to your detector? Well, what is that 89 milliseconds actually coming from? 89 milliseconds is basically the half-life of this isotope. We know that it basically undergoes beta decay in 89 milliseconds, I mean half of the particles. So as soon as it is produced, it has to basically be transported to our detectors within that time frame. And it should decay in our detectors so that we can record the signals in our detectors. And so as soon as it is produced, the particles are always traveling at speeds compared to the speed of light, which is a crazy speed. And so we are able to basically produce that isotope and transfer it to our detectors from the beam line and then basically watch it decay in our detectors. And yes, we do collect a lot of data. So we ran the experiment for about a week and we collected as much as 1.2 terabytes of data. That's a lot of data to sift through. I'm wondering, in your data, is there anything there that tells you specifically the characteristics of what you're studying? For example, how do you really know that magnesium-33 is in your detector? We have a number of detectors and some of them are known as particle identification detectors. So we look at how much energy they deposit and what kind of signal shape do we see from those in those detectors. And there are various techniques to identify what kind of particle is detected. And then when a nucleus beta decays, it will emit an electron in our detector will give a different kind of signal. And so all these, the data that we collect eventually is just a string of ones and zeros in our computer but we have to make sense of how much voltage was deposited into the detector. 
And from there, when we analyze through the data, we have different algorithms that can sift through the data and make sense of what and whether it was due to an electron, whether it was due to magnesium, whether it was due to any other isotope. We also have impurities and there are ways to take care of all these things and finally reach to the conclusion of what we want to see. As a fellow NSCL employee, I'm very familiar with these different types of detector setups that you had mentioned in that previous answer of yours. One of the things that I'm curious about, however, is how do you specifically characterize that magnesium-33 that you're studying? You mentioned that you have these particle identification detectors as well as different beta decay detectors that can record the electrons being emitted. But are there any other signals that you're able to use to make a direct identification of that magnesium-33? So magnesium-33, I mean, every nucleus has its own characteristic set of gamma rays. It can be thought of as the fingerprint of a particular isotope. So the energy of the gamma ray that is emitted by an isotope will clearly identify that particular isotope. And in our case, we also use a gamma ray detector known as the sun detector or the summing sodium iodide detector, which can record these gamma rays from these isotopes, which we correlate with the beta decays. And so while going through the data analysis, we'll look for a particular electron that was emitted due to a beta decay and then correlate it with gamma rays. So that gives us uh, more useful information about the thing that we are looking at. That's great that you're able to collect all of this information from this one particular isotope of magnesium. However, I would imagine that there are several other isotopes that are involved with this X-ray burst binary system that you're studying. Are you going to be taking into consideration the properties of these other nuclei to be able to perform these models? Or what are the plans for the data once you've collected it all? Yes, my thesis is based on the single isotope of 33 magnesium, but there are as many as 7,000 different isotopes that are included in the models to predict what kind of X-rays we will see. And obviously, it's not possible to measure all of those. So I'm also involved in another project with the Computational Maths, Science and Engineering Department that uses the experimental data to make predictions for other isotopes that have not yet been studied, who might not be able to be studied experimentally. It's good that you're also using computational techniques as well. What specific techniques are you using for machine learning, though, in this experiment? The machine learning part actually comprises of learning mass models from experimental data. So the mass of a nucleus is also very important that goes into the models that we use. And so the masses of all nuclei are not known experimentally. And there are various theories based on physics that can predict the masses of these nuclei but they kind of contradict each other. And so rather than going with physics-based theories, we have come up with a new model from using computational techniques and machine learning that can use the data that we measure experimentally and make better predictions for the masses of different nuclei. And so it can also tell us which experimental masses should we actually measure in the lab to basically bet even better our models. In this way, we don't have to measure all of them, so we can still get pretty accurate predictions for the other models. It still blows my mind that we're at the point now in our society that we're able to literally train machines to learn how to be able to identify patterns and do computational studies faster than we would be able to code it in some cases. Bringing it back to the NSCL experiment that you did, did you perform your experiment before or during this COVID-19 pandemic? And if you did it during the pandemic, what was that experience like for you? 
Yeah, uh, I had my experiment in the first week of September, which was during this pandemic. Initially, it was scheduled to be in spring semester, but the lab was shut down in the pandemic and it was postponed to the fall semester. It was a very different experience in a way that we usually have a lot of food around, but it was not allowed. We generally have a lot of people in the control room areas from where we monitor our experiment. And it was restricted to two people in the control room. So all the other experts that we usually get help from had to connect remotely. But in at last, like eventually I was still fortunate enough to have my thesis experiment even during the pandemic. And yeah, as they say, the show must go on. It's wonderful that you were able to gather your data back in September. Since you were able to do that and conduct your experiment successfully, does that mean that you're about to graduate? Not so soon, actually, because I still have to go through all the data analysis process and then I have to write my thesis. But hopefully within the next somewhere in the next couple of years, I plan to graduate. Still, congratulations on finishing your PhD thesis experiment successfully. Since you're going to be here for a little bit more time, I'm curious about whether or not you're involved with any student organizations here at MSU. Yes, I am a part of uh, a few student organizations. Currently, I'm the mentoring chair for the WAMPS, which is the Women's and Minorities in Physical Science Society for the Department of Physics and Astronomy, as well as the NSCL. And so I look over the mentoring programs we conduct. Basically, there are three types of programs that we have, which is the peer-to-peer grad student mentoring or the grad student mentoring undergrad students or postdocs mentoring grad students. Apart from that, I'm also the student member on the steering committee for IRINA, which is the International Research Network of Nuclear Astrophysics. It's great that you're the mentoring chair of WAMPS. I strongly believe that mentoring is so important. I was able to mentor two women in STEM this past summer, and it was a wonderful experience for me. It was also a great experience talking to you today, Rahul. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.